but it's almost the opposite of thermodynamics. You have to expend energy to get energy. Mm. And at least and when you don't expend energy because you're sitting in your ass, you feel more tired, you feel more lazy. So for me, if I go out for a walk or messing around outside, I feel more energetic. Yeah. So it's the opposite. It's like the more energy you take in and the less you expend, you don't have energy. You have less energy. Right. But for me, it's like I expend energy to get energy. It makes me feel good psychologically. It makes me feel fresher. Which means it makes me feel better. Which means ultimately you can create as much as you you want and need, right? Which is pretty yeah. it's pretty cool when you think about it like that. If you feel tired, if you feel physically tired, what do you do? Do something physically active. Yeah. And you don't feel physically tired anymore. Yeah. I'm not talking about so dead tired that you literally, but you know, just normally during your day, if you're feeling lethargic and physically tired, what should you do? Move your body. Yeah. Go for and a walk. Less go for a walk around the yeah. block. You literally go for a walk. Yeah. And then pe people get into this like downward spot. Oh, I'm so tired. All I can do is rest. No, that's when you need to do something. Yeah. Over a walk, over a cycle, do something, climb a fucking tree, do something. <laughs> and that will make you feel so much more energetic. I'm Ren McDonald, and this is The Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth, where I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hope Initiative. My name is Rin MacDonald. Thank you so much for joining me for what is episode number 85 with Mark Baker. Mark and I were strangers before this conversation. We were introduced by a mutual friend, Jody Hebrard, uh, via Twitter. And as you'll come to learn, Mark has lived a colourful life from uh, London, living out of London. Uh, we did this one yeah, via Zoom about a month ago, so you may notice uh, the audio isn't quite uh, as where I would normally have it in terms of standards, but it was such a fantastic conversation. So if you can get past, uh, I guess, yeah, that lower standard of audio, you are going to hear a brilliant conversation from a brilliant man. We chat uh, many things, but really some of the key ones that stood out for me were learning uh, your own weaknesses and the importance of that, the, the difference between money and freedom, and also why being unemployable is no bad thing. Uh, when we started recording, we also just jumped straight into a great, great conversation. I normally chat for a few minutes prior to officially kicking things off. This one went for a little bit longer than that, but I just decided to, uh, to leave it in. So you're going to hear all of that. But thanks again for joining me and please enjoy this conversation with Mark Baker. Cheers. Yeah, Australian rules football. I mean, that's tough games. Play that competition. Yeah, a lot of running. Yeah. Very fit guys. Super fit. I would say, look, soccer players are uh, on a similar level, but there's no there's no arm to arm like grappling and tackling, which is allowed which is allowed in in AFL footy. So yeah, but there's a there's a coach um, you may have heard of him, Darren Burgess. He uh, used to work for, he actually used to work for Liverpool and also the Socceroos, health and fitness coach, like strength and conditioning, really well respected in in the general fields, but worked in both soccer and AFL, just left the club that I support here, which is Melbourne, um, Melbourne Football Club, um, but just 
conditions people to be absolute weapons and Melbourne have been one of the fittest teams in the last few years because of his conditioning. So, yeah, he wow. he he says though that even even some like he's worked at Liverpool and he says some soccer players would would outrun for sure most senior like elite elite uh, footy players. But I don't know. I reckon I reckon if Australia didn't have the AFL and all the, mainly most of the athletes playing that game, we would probably yeah. be able to compete in the World Cup. Yeah, like. More players would play soccer. Soccer is the most played sport here in this country by far, but I would say most of the elite players. It is, yeah. But most of the elite players play AFL in this country. Elite elite men. So, anyway. What about rugby? I mean, you know, I, I, to me, Australia rugby like synonymous. You know, perhaps not. I mean, you've got the All Blacks, of course, New Zealand. But I wasn't. Uh, rugby, I thought it was huge. Yeah, no, they're saying it's not. It's not the top. Not, not in, not in Victoria, where I am, the state of Victoria, Melbourne, <laughs> Melbourne's the capital. Yeah. But um, no, definitely in other parts, rugby is big. But I would say, yeah, it's probably bigger as a competition than the soccer than the, than the A League here, what we call it. But um, wow. yeah, AFL by far is is bigger. So yeah, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um. Um, I come from track and field. You know, athletics is always been what I've been interested in. Yeah, yeah. What we're doing. Um, we have a lot of our youngsters, and I, 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 I uh, coached or I teach athletics to a few schools, independent private schools, and there were loads of very good kids, very athletic, very fast. I always said, "Hey, listen, don't get into athletics. If you're fast and you're good with football, go into football." Yeah. Okay, because you're earning potential so much more. Even if you're semi-pro, you can earn a lot of money. You know, 600, 700, 800, 1,000 quid a week. Yeah. You know, even if you're semi-pro. And this is literally about thousands of people. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in, in the, you know, in the professional league, there must be a few couple of thousand footballers. No, more than that. There's a few thousand footballers. So you don't need to. I actually know some professional. Some of them. As far as I'm concerned. Aren't that good? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I know people have never paid for like probably they did. They've been. I'm, I know a little bit about sport, and I know talent. When I see it because I've been surrounded by that basically for the past thirty years. Yeah. So I see people with outrageous physical talents uh, in football, in tennis, in taekwondo, you know, martial arts, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think if you like were in that sport, you'd probably be in the top fifty of the world. Yeah. Okay. It's incredible the amount of people. But what I'm saying is, is that football, because it's such a huge game, it affects the other sports because it takes talent from yeah. other sports. Okay, so I'm sure there are some good footballers who if they've gone into more sprinting or track field, be really good, but they went into football. For sure. Okay, because, you know, let's face it, it early, I mean, football's a very competitive game. There are like 10, hundreds of thousands of youngsters playing for They want to be the next big thing or they want to earn money and everything. Yeah. But compared to athletics, athletics is like a four-person's sport. So you've got to be like <laughs> the top, you know, whatever. So, But with football, maybe you're the top 5,000 players, you know, in the country. You're going to earn a good wage. Yeah. So I always said to the kids, if you're fast, if you're athletic, you're good with the ball, try out for football. Don't bother with athletics. Yeah, right. So I'm sure, like you were saying, with, with uh, AFL, rugby, yeah. 
depending what that sport is, it takes people from other sports and it takes that talent that we may have been good in other sports and it takes it because that, you know, that big sport yes. is taking all the talent. So I'm sure there are people that play this same way who would have been, you know, good sprinters. Of course. I remember once a few years ago, I went to a Chelsea uh, training session. Yeah. Okay. Which is really interesting. It was, it was hardly anyone around. And the Chelsea squad uh, were doing international yeah. on grass down in Wimbledon near where I live. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, if you knew, you knew that was one of their training grounds. So I went down there just to look. And I was an 800 meter runner. And I was surprised how good they were in it, in the stuff they were doing, how fit they were. Yeah. Because when Arsenal Benga came in, but Arsenal, he like transformed, you know, he was one of the leading people that football is becoming fitter, you know, all the rest of it. Okay. You need skill. You can't just be fit, no skill, but that's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. But this is built on top of skill. And I was surprised how fit the, the footballers were, the yeah. intervals they were doing. And I'm not, I, as I say, I come track of football. I know all about, and I train for 800 meters, which is two minutes of sheer help. <laughs> okay. And I could see the intervals that these footballers were, were, were doing. And I thought, you know what? That's pretty good. That would stand up pretty well to a decent level 800 meter race. Okay. So, and then I found out their sort of average VO2 is around 58, 59, which is pretty good. Yep. Okay. Which is pretty good. And, um, so yeah, the, the big sport in that country takes the talent and it's a lot of benefit to other, you know, it, it detracts from other sports because it takes all the talent yeah. from those other sports. So, um, and also we saw, I mean, back in Australia, uh, was it in the nineties when Australia were winning like everything, rugby, the Olympics, we had great Olympic, Australian Olympians, 400 being runners, sprinters and everything. Yeah. And everyone was installing the virtues of the Australian Institute in sport, what they were doing, what they were getting right and everything. And I thought, okay, you're saying that, but what will happen is, so just random precipitation means that a country or a sport suddenly, like we had in the eighties, we had Steve Ovet, uh, Seb Cole, Steve Cram, we just had a great load of pistols. Right. And everyone said, oh, and we had Linda Christie in sprinting and things like that. And people saying, what are the Brits doing right? I don't think he was doing anything right. In that particular, it was just, we had our time in the You had a good crop of, a and, crop of humans you know, in, in we a, a good, good period. Crop, yeah. yeah, they egged each other on because your opponent is what makes you better yeah. to a certain extent because you want to get better. Who you're training with, um, all of that. Yeah. yeah, who you're training with. You know, they're, they're, they're so... So it's like, you know, you break four minute mark, Roger Bannister breaks a four minute mile in the fifties, and then within, you know, like two months, seven people break the four minute mark. Yeah. Because you now know it's cheap because he's done it. Yeah. So there was a lot of guff, I thought, about not that they didn't know what they were doing, about the Australian Institute of Sport, that they somehow got the keys to the king of the training, sports selections, but they hadn't really, that's what detracted Australia's. It's just that everything came together and created this perfect time when Australian rugby was doing really well, where we had Olympians who were Australian, you know, things like that. So, yeah. and now we don't hear anything about it. In the UK, we hear nothing about the Australian Institute of Sport because these ebbs and flows, you know, yeah. it's very difficult. Are these just random things or are, this, or are they geological by design? Yeah, it's uh, so. 
it's interesting. I mean, in soccer, they call it the golden generations. Like Spain had a golden generation for their football team in 2008 to 2012. They won three major tournaments in a row, 2008 Euros, 2010 World Cup, 2012 Euros. Like absolutely phenomenal. Uh, You know, Belgium have had a good crop of late. Uh, France are ridiculous. But yeah, whether it's, I mean, there's, there's so much. I mean, we're talking there about AFL players being you know, the main the main crew here in, in Australia and, yeah. and, you know, footballers being similar maybe in England and and in most countries around Europe because that's where all the money is. So that's where I, f- I feel like more attention, more coaching, better coaches, better facilities. Yeah. It's all getting funneled. Yeah. So no wonder these players from the ages of like 16 are just absolute weapons yeah. for the next 20 years, right? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you said about the conditioning for uh, AFL. Mm. Is there quite a high conditioning and physical fitness allows you to operate at a high at a high level? Okay, so it makes you more robust. But on the other side, is the more muscular your game is and the more athletic your game is, there's also quite a high attrition rate for injury as well. Totally, uh, you find it with tennis players. Barring Nadal, who seems to be an exception. There's a lot of questions about Nadal anyway, but he's got a very, you know, tennis players who've got a very muscular, athletic game, they tend to rise very quickly. They stay there and then they suddenly get all sorts of problems with injury, knees, and all the rest of it because their game is such a muscular, athletic game. Yep. Whereas even though Federer is, his game's different. Mm. You know, his, his timing is like perfect, the way he moves around the court. But you don't really see, He's got to be athletic, but you don't see the athleticism Federer because he sort of plays a different game. Yeah. Whereas you see the sort of muscular athleticism of someone like Nadal. Okay. Nadal's had all sorts of problems. He's 36. He's just won Roland Garros. He's just won the French Open. Yeah. You know, and he's 36. And he had all sorts of problems like seven, eight, nine, ten years ago with his knees. He also lost weight and then he put on more muscle and things like that. So I'm wondering if AFL, because it is such a brutal game. And they're so well conditioned, but is there still quite a high injury attrition rate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not connected to any club at a high level to give specific details like right now. But for example, one of the guys who plays in my team recently just broke his foot. Now that can happen for all manner of reasons, right? Too much load, someone falling on it, whatever it may be. But no, there are definitely players and especially in the last few years and we can go down maybe that rabbit hole of of what what's come come about in the last couple of years with with the pandemic and and forced vaccinations and things. But there have been a lot of players that I've noticed just retiring out of the blue, especially the mid season. Just so and so has announced really? their retirement, and they're maybe late twenties or early thirties. And wow. if you if you reach two hundred games of AFL, that's deemed like very. Like that's that's great. You're in the top. I don't know what percentage it is, but you'd be one of the top players to have ever played the game. Two hundred games. So, you know, comparing that to comparing that to football to soccer, you know, there's 38 wow. games in most leagues in the top top tier in, yeah. in Europe. 38 games in a season. That's in the league alone. Mm-hmm. Some players play 50 games a season. So, you know, in four, five, six years, you've already reached more than 200 some players like the captain of my club he's been playing i think for 13 years and he's only at 171 games for example so it can be yeah very attritional in terms of players you know 
reaching that is deemed so worthy. But mind you, there's players that have got gotten a three hundred. I think I think the record's in the four hundreds. But that was a guy who who played a little while ago. So. Yeah, there's there's a lot I could say about that, but I'm certainly no expert. But it'd be interesting to get your takes if you spend some time looking at, and watching the game because the field is massive. Players are doing upwards of some some 15 kilometers a game over four quarters, just sprinting, uh, tackling, yeah. kicking, running yeah. to the next contest. Yeah, it's it's a great game to watch. As I say, I've never played it as an adult. I would like to, um, but I'm turning 30 in a few months, so I'd need to condition my body Ooh. a bit more as a as a soccer player. I've <laughs> been a bit soft for the last 20 years in that regard, but I reckon I can handle myself on the field. I'd love to. Love to give it a crack. <laughs> 30 years. I've been doing quite a lot on video calls for people. Uh, I have this uh, product called Guru's Arc, and it's basically... I video calls for people for like a hundred pounds, hundred twenty I got. So I've had lots of people uh buying that and I've been doing over the past few months lots of one to one video calls. Yeah. Most of it been about you know, I do health and fitness, but I've also because of gang fit and everything of the attitude I have, a lot of it's about changing people feeling trapped and wanting to change their lifestyle. Yeah. You know, and, and then, you know, and I find that most of the people are a transition. I even 29 to 30, 39 to 40, or even 49 to 50. Really? It's this point in time when you think, yeah, so it's like a symbolic thing, isn't it? A milestone. 29 to 30. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, oh shit, I, I, I ought to sort things out now, or I'm not a young man anymore. Why, you know, and you see other people, perhaps, you know, they're married, they've got kids, they've got half of them, they've got back, or thinking, whatever. So what I found is there isn't really any. There's been this sort of life cycle, the stages of life cycle. You're a kid, then you're a teenager, you know, and then you get married. Then you leave home and then you get married and then you have kids and then you're middle-aged and then you retire. You know, this is like sort of well-known sort of seven-stage life cycle. And I find that most of people don't go through that like that at all, you know, and people of all ages, you know, from like 19 up to 65 of devotion. It, yeah, it's a small subset. Yeah, but with very similar questions and thinking, you know, like, I just want to change it. Like, even at the dentist, and you employ 10 people, you know, dentists well known to be pretty well off. And yeah. he had a, a big practice. And he said, I've been in dentistry for like 25 years, got loads of money, mm-hmm. lots of unsafe. He said, I just hate it. Like, I've changed my life. Wow. And, and um, you know, and um, so, no. I, it just sorry, I've just gone on a change. No, that's exactly you said you get twenty nine, and yeah, then yeah. you need to get more fit, or you need to this or that. Well, look, I'm I'm in I'm in decent shape. I'm more man. If I was tackled by a bloke yeah. who's been playing the game for fifteen years and knows how to drop <laughs> someone, I might I might come off yeah. with a broken collarbone. But I'm <laughs> I'm fit. I'm fit. I'm as healthy as I've ever been. I've been yeah. sober now for yeah. for eight months, all off the back really of of all the bullshit to do with the pandemic. And I've always played sport and rode my bikes and swam. I was at the pool last night. So no, I'm in, I'm in decent shape, but I I appreciate you mentioning that because yeah, I guess when you have a new, a new digit at the start of your age, whether it's 29 into 30, 39 into 40. Yeah. I know it's a cliche, but a lot of people do think about it. Massively. You're going into a new decade Yeah, and you know, you're no longer when I went from 29, I mean, I hated going from 29 to 30, but I loved going from 39 to 40. I loved going from 49 to 50. 
But 20 was like, okay, Mark, you've got to be a bit serious now because <laughs> you're not in your 20s anymore. So you can't just say, well, I'm in my 20s, you know, it's fine. I'll just whatever you think. Okay, well, you need to like sort stuff out and everything. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose these arbitrary things, you know, you know, chronological age is just like, a, you know, the signpost that you've got to do something. It's just not been sort of bullshit, really. Uh, it's all in your head, right? It's almost like this social pressure that we make up in our minds because we see other people. Um, yeah. It's a big thing we can chat about. Before we continue, though, Mark Baker, welcome to the Hope Initiative. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's good to talk. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We've already chatted for half an hour before this official introduction, and we, I don't know, I, f- I feel like you're just one of my mates just chatting about all sorts of things. We've chatted about Aussie rules football. We've chatted about a bit of the Premier League, different things and how we met um, as well just now is through uh, a lady that I've met via Twitter, Jody Habrad, who is, uh, yeah, a great, a great woman. She uh, did a bit of a coaching call with you. I'm not sure exactly when that was, maybe six or, oh no, maybe it was a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, a year or so. year or so ago, but she's introduced us, and yeah, I'm I'm stoked to be able to have this call today. I'm here in Melbourne, Australia, at 7:30 p.m. You are in London, and it's 10:30 a.m. Is that correct? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. This is a wonderful thing about the internet, social media. <laughs> uh, you can connect to people across your distance, so you have this. You find that there's all people all across the world. I'll say ideas if you talk to and everything so it's like a global i know it's a bit of a cliche but it's like a global community where you can literally you have parts of you know an extended network of friends all over the world yeah this is why i am a little bit evangelical about how much the internet how many there's been an explosion of opportunities because of the internet mm. yeah. part of that is meeting different people connecting collaborations it just literally crushes the distance. Yeah. You and other people. And we couldn't do that. When I was a kid, it wasn't in the internet. Yeah. You know, I remember going to India in the mid 80s. I was in India for eight, uh, six months, my girlfriend in the mid 80s. And we had to try and phone back to London, to the UK. So we had to go to the telegraph office in New Delhi. And we waited in this telegraph office, the main telegraph office, as it was called in New Delhi, for five hours. So they could get a line to the UK, okay, just a phone line. Wow. We waited there for four or five hours. We didn't get one. <laughs> okay. Now, and that was, you know, what how old was I then? I was like 24, 25. So the first half of my life was without the internet. Yeah. It almost seems, it almost seems like a foreign land now. My childhood seems like a completely foreign land because there was no internet. Now, you put a photograph online. Someone in St. Petersburg can see it. Someone in Melbourne can see it. Someone straight away. Mm. And this is changing in an astonishingly short time. So it's changed the nature of opportunity. It's changed the nature of how people meet each other. Yeah. And also, I've met people in different, I've, like, I've got friends in people in different countries. And I've gone to those countries to meet them. It's just incredible. And yes. it's just people of all levels, poor people, multi-millionaires, even billionaires, which yeah. are people I never would have met before social media or the internet. So it's an incredible thing. So the fact that we are talking now 
you know, you at 7.30 in the evening mm-hmm. in Australia, me taking here, it's because of the internet and because of social media. And it's just mind-blowing. To me, I just find that mind-blowing. No, it and, is. You know, because, but perhaps because I was young and it didn't exist, I can, you know, I don't take it for granted. Yeah. I literally, just, every day, I think it's just incredible thing that mankind has produced, <laughs> which is a bit, the internet's a bit like the human brain, you know, all the interconnections, all the connections, all the nodes, all the little things. So it's an incredible thing. So yeah, it's good to talk again. I talk too much. So you have to stop me by goal. No, I love it. I but love it, mate. I don't talk think too much. you don't talk too much at all. It's interesting though. You mentioned, <laughs> you probably have heard of uh, like six degrees of separation before that idea that you're six yeah. degrees away from anyone on the planet. Well, I, I've heard somewhere yeah. I don't have like an official source or anything, but who fucking cares? But it's because of the internet, it's more like four degrees of separation now. Like, uh, I think you can like connect one to six straight away and miss out the middle man. Mate, you know, absolutely. It's literally ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. It's ridiculous. It is. But uh, no, I appreciate all of that. Now, you're a man, as I mentioned, who was introduced by Jody, and you mentioned they're living half your life without the internet. Now, what I normally do to, to start these podcasts, because for most people listening, they may not know a huge bit about you. If you could start, with your earliest memory as a young as a young boy and bring us to present day 2022 and you mentioned talking a bit too much i like to restrict people with a time limit here because i'm sure you could wax lyrical about many different things but that first that first memory and present day in in three minutes mark see how you go i won't cut you off I won't cut you okay. off. 180 uh, seconds. 180 seconds, mate. 180 seconds. That's like an anecdote per second. <laughs> well, damn, I've already wasted 15 seconds. Uh, that's less anecdotes. And my first memory when I was about two, when I moved into my house in southwest London. Uh, so I was brought up by two sisters and my mum. So it's a single working class, single parent house, household. Mm. So it's me, my two sisters, two older sisters and my mum. We moved into a house and we shared the house with a family upstairs. We had an outside loom, black and white TV, no phone. Okay, so that was in 1963 when I was two. Uh, and I went to my local school, local comprehensive school, which is like five minutes walk away. Um, and then I left school when I was 17 and I went straight into the bank. I went straight and working for Barclays Bank. Uh, so I worked for Barclays Bank for two years. And then I worked for the civil service for five years. Um, and then I sort of realized, actually, I realized the second year at the bank that I didn't like work. Or more specifically, I didn't like being employed. It was a great crack for the first year or so because I had money. I was going uptown in London. It was doing great and everything. Then after about a year, year and a half, I realized that being employed wasn't for me. Um, and uh, not because I was lazy. I just felt completely trapped about having to do the same thing every day. Now, I think I found out on the internet that like, there are many people feel like that, being stuck in a job. And I found out, I thought, first of all, I thought I was just because of the job, I don't like it. And it took me a while to realize it wasn't because of the job. It was actually uh, probably right to three minutes already. It was, I didn't like having to do the same thing every day and have no choice whether I could go for a walk in the park or go to the beach or just do nothing. Yeah. Um, so then, it, then my daughter was born uh, uh, in 1987 when I was 20. Six when I was 25, uh, and shortly after I left full time employment. Uh, and then I basically survived pre internet from doing part time jobs. I was a gardener, I was a market trader, 
Uh, I bought a couple of properties and I sort of lived, you know, a bit of this, a bit of ducking and diving. I was a gardener for about a year. So I tried out lots of different things, yeah. uh, which I would, which I would, uh, which is great because of that, I've not literally tried everything. Yeah. So, um, and I wouldn't change any of that. So I've been through times where I've had, you know, been very comfortable. I've been times where I've been financially very uncomfortable. That's sort of maybe what I am here today. So, uh, and then the internet came along, you know, late, not late nineties. I went to university and did sports science degree as a mature student in my early thirties. That was good. A lot of the theories have changed since I went to university in sports science. Um, and yeah, so here I am now. And then I started writing about 12 years ago. Uh, and me, for me, writing is basically just ranting on paper about <laughs> things. So I didn't write for a market. I just want, it's almost like a stream of consciousness. Um, so there were two things I wrote. One was gangnick and the other was anaerobics destruction, reconstruction. And I was living in a small village in Somerset, uh, which is in southwest in the country, in southwest England for about five years. And I wasn't working. I was just basically writing all the time. And that was great. I was outside London. That was great. Uh, so here I am now, 61. Um, oh, I did also compete as an 800 meter runner. When I turned to, as a club runner, and then when I turned 40, I went down to sprints at 60, 100 meters, 200 meters. And I did reasonably well in that. I was the top few of the country. I went to the European Championship. I won national medals, area medals, local medals. Um, and um, yeah, so here I am now. And that was over 180 seconds. I apologize. No, mate. Thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate it. You've lived... Yeah, it sounds like an incredible life, and I'm sure we could dig into all of those points for, for hours on end. But I'd love to go back. You mentioned growing up with just your mum and two older sisters in, was it was it London that you grew up as well? Yeah, South London. South, South London. London, yeah. So growing up without maybe your dad being around, how was, how was that without a, I don't know if you had a father figure, but what was what were some memories like there, if you don't mind sharing that? Uh, my dad did. My dad left when I was about one and a half. So came from Mauritius. My mum's Swiss. My father's from Mauritius. Yeah. And um, uh, and there was no problem. He used to come and visit. You know, every few months. And he had a quite different one. My life was quite hard. She worked all her life and everything. She, you know, as soon as we were born, she went back to work. So she was never unemployed. Always there. So she earned enough to put food at our plate and everything. But you know, it's reasonably sort of. Um, or background. As I say, we had an outside loop, just like, well, you, you know, so in winter, we used to have to go outside in the snow, <gasps> go to the outside loop. Uh, and I think I was the last one in my school to have a color TV. And I think I was the last one in my school to have a phone. And we used to have to go to the local phone box, wanted to, uh, out in the street, we wanted to make a phone. Right. Uh, so my mum did the best she could. Uh, she retrained to become a bookkeeper. When she retrained to become a bookkeeper, her, earning, her earnings went up. Yep. So that was good. Um, but what we did do with my mum, we went out a lot. We did go to Switzerland once a year, which was great. Nice. Uh, so we went on a Swiss holiday once a year and we went out to lots of picnics at the bar and seaside. So I never felt so. My dad used to come around every few months. He was quite bit off. Really. He sort of operated in a different, he was a bit of a snob. So he used to like mix with people who were celebrities, rich people. And every now and then he's come around and take us out to a fancy restaurant like Fair or Chelsea or up. So we saw a different, so I, I saw, I think I sort of idolized my dad. Right? Mm. 
um, because he was everything my background was. Uh, but I realised it was my mum. Yeah, you know, she she was the one who looked after us and cared for us. My dad didn't contribute at all to that. Yeah. Uh, but so he was just like this weird exotic creature uh, that used to come into our lives every few months and take us off somewhere nice. Um, but um, yeah, I've got no, I have literally, I've got zero, I'm, I'm mixed race. So yeah. I, I never had any problems having no father. I never had any problems with being mixed race. I never had any problems with that at all. I think sometimes people, they think too much about things. You know, they haven't got a dad or, you know, they don't know where they come from because their parents, you know, they've got parents from abroad. I've never had any problems with that. So I, I had an enjoyable childhood. I was very active, played a lot of football, climbed trees, went to the park. I was always out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my childhood was good. So I personally, you know, don't feel that, uh, that you know, not having a father around was any problem whatsoever. Yeah, nice. But we had one parent who loved us and looked after us. Yeah. And that can make up for a lot of other yeah. shit. But if you've got one parent who loves you, looks after you, then you feel pretty secure as a kid. And so I was I never had any problem. No, that's that's great. And in terms of your, your two older sisters, how was the relationship with them growing up? Did they did they take care of you? Did you look after them? What was what was that like? Well, I was the youngest one. My oldest, my sister older me was two years older, and the, the older sister was two years older than that. Yeah. Um, so, um, um, yeah, relationship was fine. Relationship was fine. My older sister was a half sister. Okay. Because uh, I've got quite a few half sisters and brothers, which is like another story. But I, I grew up with two sisters. Yeah. But there were other. My mum had two kids from a previous marriage. Yeah. And my Father had uh, now. Let me finish right. He had three kids from a previous marriage, so there were quite a lot of half brothers and sisters. Like that. I was only brought up by two older sisters. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, relationships good. Had no problems at all. And you know, usual arguments we might have with older sisters. Yeah. Um, but um, no, it was all fine. My my yeah, but I I do realise looking back at it, we didn't have much money. Yeah. Ah, I didn't get that was. My, you know, I didn't think about that at all. So, no problem. So, yeah, everything was great about the home. And we stayed in that house, you know, for my mum, mum had that house for 40, well, till she died. So, the, my background was stable. Yeah. Wasn't as if we were single parent kids, single, you know, and whatever, we were pushed to the post. No, my mum worked. She paid for a place. She painted it, paid for a place. And we, that was our family home. So, I think the problem is when there's some bad yeah, affects the kids. We always had a solid, uh, consistent background. Yeah, so that must have a problem. That must have helped a lot. That's that's nice. Talk to me a bit about school for you growing up. Did you like school? Did you enjoy studying? Maybe you enjoyed the more athletic part. We'll definitely come to talk about your your time in sort of track and field and how you're a bit of an ath- athletic specimen. Um, but yeah, what was school like? for you in those those young ages yeah school was good i enjoyed primary school that's from like 5 to 11 that way to a local school i didn't have to travel halfway across london like a lot of kids now a few minutes away uh lots of friends there i was always quite outgoing a bit of a joker at class and everything and i enjoyed lessons you know i was okay at maths and 
you know, English and things like that. So um, uh, I enjoyed school. And then secondary school, from 11 to 16, 11 to 17, um, I enjoyed that as well. And I always liked sciences. I like biology, physics, chemistry, uh, geography. Um, and um, um, I did okay in exams. I got enough exams to go to the bank. I think you did that at the time. You did like six O levels. O levels are like dead now, you know. But uh, yeah. and I got those, and I went straight into the banks. But no, I enjoyed school. Um, I was always sporty, but I wasn't competitive. Yeah, we played a lot of like bulldog and he, you know, during um, football, during break time, you know, body yeah. break, lunchtime. We were always out running around playing sport. Through the weekend, I was out playing football, around with a frisbee with friends, you know, just doing. You know, stuff like that. So, no, I quite enjoyed school. I wasn't a rebel, particularly. Uh, and, uh, you know, I like my lessons. Sounds boring, isn't it, really? You know, I quite enjoyed school. No, no, it's it's good. Um, I think it's interesting in that how you've how you've grown up and you've you mentioned before having a go at a whole bunch of different fields, essentially. I think it sort of reflects because, for me, school was so diverse in all the things that you, you study. Did you, yeah. when you were that age, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do for your life? That cliche question that, that old people ask young kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? Did you have an idea? I don't think I had an idea, um, a specific idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, but I think as a kid, you have images in your head. You have got these notions of what you'd like to do. But for me, it never involved a job or anything. It might have been like looking after animals or it might be um, climbing mountains <laughs> or owning a nightclub. You know, these are things that went through my, when I was like a teenager. So I'd be really good to own a nightclub. Or I'd be really good to travel the world. Or I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was like a lot of kids then. I was interested in dinosaurs. So I wanted to be a fossil hunter or an archaeologist, mm. or I wanted to be a scientist, you know, and stuff like that. That involved really an idea of a career in the sense that it's a career, a job being yeah. employed. It's just sort of like some sort of idea of uh, what I wanted to be. But I didn't really have any sort of. I mean, I was a kid who was in a kid's world. You know, people over 20 didn't exist in my world. <laughs> you know, I was just a kid with my mates. So I really didn't appreciate they were like older people and what it meant to be older. I was just a kid enjoying myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. I was just in a bubble. Yeah. I was in a bubble. So the thoughts of what I did after school were just hazy. You know, they were just like dreams and wishes, but no real, you know, I definitely want to do this. So I'm going to be a businessman or I've got to work in a job. I had none of that really. Yeah, right. Um, so then you end up going and working in the bank at a young age and you, you sort of mentioned before you quickly come to realise that you didn't want to be employed or the, the roles that you were doing, they were, yeah, good for a few years, but then you sort of got sick of it. Can you talk a bit more about that, like how that sort of eventuated over the, sort of the decade before you end up back at, back at uni, university? I think that after a year or so, I had this like epiphany. It wasn't a sudden epiphany. It was like a slow epiphany. It was like a slow boiling epiphany over a few months. And uh, I'd been at the bank for about a year and a half in London, near Trafalgar Square, centre of London. And I just, at the time then, in the 70s, when you worked for the bank, I mean, you worked for the bank for life. Yeah. So there were people in the local head office where I worked in parks at the bank. 
that had literally worked there from when they were like 19 and they were just about to retire. So they've been there for, you know, 45 years or 40 years or so. And I just looked around and I saw these people. And I, I know it's a cliche, but I saw what they looked like. And I saw that they got married to people who worked in the bank. I saw that their social life was the bank because the bank had a big social life. Uh, and um, I thought, hmm, I don't ever want this. Uh, you know, that's not where I see myself working for the bank for like all of my life. And um, also, I got into music, you know, the indie scene. I, was, I started getting interested in music just about when the punk revolution came around in 1976. And, um, you know, in London, you know, in the, that time, I was into like heavy metal beforehand. As soon as punk and indie came along, I'm like, so I think I was a little bit influenced perhaps by music as well, yep. which is, um, you know, the Sex Pistols and Clash and, you know, and then indie. So I so, and what was I doing? I was working for a band. That's like, to me, that was like complete odds yeah. what my social life was. Um, and then. So yeah, it was just this like slow realization that I didn't want to be trapped in a job and end up. It's not really detracting from the people who like work there that all the time, but I just didn't want to be like Yeah. I didn't want my whole life to be in the bank. But I didn't really know how to escape from it. So I changed my job. Yeah. But when I changed my job, I realized it wasn't I wanted a different job. I realized I didn't want to be employed. Right. Stuff. So then as you, so as you moved on then, and I, I sort of want to come back, so this is maybe a two-part question, but as you then continue to, to live, you obviously need money. You mentioned doing a whole bunch of jobs. You said you were a gardener, oh, man. a bunch of other things. Were you self-employed just doing odd jobs for yeah. people? Yeah. Was that? Basically, yeah. I set up this gardening thing with a friend just yeah. before the internet. So we had to go around to different houses. You know, we got up, we got some um, leaflets printed out for gardening services. And I realized then it's a bit like creative economy now. That if you post 500 leaflets through letterboxes, you'll get a certain conversion rate. You might get three or four people phone you or get in touch that they want their garden done, especially if it's like spring, you know, where people happen like look after their gardens and they need things clearing and weeding and cutting back and stuff like that. Uh, or they need their herbaceous board to be, you know, nicely organized or something. So I realized then the more leaflets you put through letterboxes, the more work you get. So that's like a physical thing. So, and then I also did personal training and that was the same thing. Leaflets from letterboxes in, fortunately where I lived, Wimbledon. You know, it's quite a nice area. Yeah. Uh, so there were people who had money to pay for farmers, pay for personal trainers, things like that. So I was doing that. And then I worked also in Port for a pay for a friend in Portobello Road, Notting Hill, mm. the same name as a film, which is sort of quite a well-known market in West London. Uh, and I worked for, on, a, on Saturdays for about two years in Notting Hill on a market street store. Uh, and that was sort of my upper limit for employment one day a week. <laughs> and that was a definitely joke. So at times I was financially okay. And at other times I was basically as poor as church mouse. Um, so this is why now I don't really care. I, I can put up a lot of pressure because I've dealt with it. 
in the past. So what can scare a lot of people doesn't scare me because I know I can cope. Um, and um, it's not because I'm so wonderful. I'm so, you know, like, oh, it's like, I'm just uh, having, okay, having no money to me isn't really much different from having money. Because <laughs> to me, me, the main thing is freedom. You can say, well, you've got no money, you've got no freedom. I understand that. But uh, my main thing is not to do what I don't want to do. That's it. And uh, because of that, I've suffered a bit in the past because I literally, because I, you know, I said, I think online some time ago, then, you know, refusing the job is more satisfying than accepting the job. Okay. And for me, it's always been a case much more satisfying by turning down the job. Okay. <laughs> because for me, what I'm doing is turning down in trap. You know, and I've done that so much. I've done, I think I've done it to my own detriment, my natural detriment, because I just won't be in my mind. You know, as soon as I accept the job, I'm in a cage. And a group that, that, that um, spoke to me was the Smiths, was Morrissey and the Smiths in the 70s and 80s. And one of the songs was uh, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. I was looking for a job and then I found a job, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. And that was literally me. Whenever I did succumb, I went to an interview, I could always force it as it no matter what. Okay. But when I got a job, I soon realized that this is, I just hated it. Um, but I also did a few marketing jobs, you know, part-time and selling ad space over phones. So I was good with speaking on the phone. So I used to sell advertising space, TV space, magazine space, mm. whatever. So I just did like part-time jobs. So I did, uh, temporary jobs and I, or I did my own thing like personal training, you know, gardening, all sorts of things. And I also managed to, you know, buy a few properties as well, let those out, sell them, stuff like that. And at the time, it's like, you didn't need, you know, if you knew people, you didn't need to be employed, maybe rightly or wrongly, whatever, but you didn't need it. I mean, I knew a few mortgage brokers. You, you knew people, probably, you knew people from your time at the bank. You knew people from your time at the bank as well, right? I'm sure. I'll tell you what, every kid ought to learn about the finance industry. Mm. Okay. It's a real skill that I had. I mean, they say, you know, it's good to have skills like carpentry, you know, electrician, building house. Those are all great. Every kid should learn about finance. Okay. I knew nothing about finance and I picked up the financial times, which is, um, uh, financial newspaper in the UK. And I looked at all of the stocks and shares papers and the yields and the price earnings index and all the rest of it, rights issues. I didn't know what I was looking at. So when I was about 19 or 20, I thought, okay, now I'm going to learn about stocks and shares and finance. Um, and I bought a few shares and I started trading options back in the eighties. I started trading up call options, put options, I started trading. And also went to a few jobs in the city as a market maker, uh, and buying and selling shares. And when my daughter was born, I did the same with her. I like bought her shares and everything only so that she could learn about finance. Okay. Cause I realized that basically finance is what walks the world. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like oxygen, money's like oxygen. You need it to live. Yeah. Okay. So every kid wants to learn a little bit about finance. And I don't mean just about saving money or interest rates or having an ISA. I mean, learn a bit about finance industry. Ultimately, it's all cropping. Okay. Ultimately, it's all cropping. I don't believe people say, I mean, I know mortgage brokers and all sorts of finance. Oh, we operate under the 
financial service authority, we can't do this, can't do that. And then when you speak to them and ask them about that, oh yeah, we need to be happy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I managed to buy properties when I owe money whatsoever, you know, and it was ridiculous. Anybody could get a mortgage in the eighties and nineties, a monkey in a super turner. You know, I go to the most respected financial places and, you know, whatever. And essentially, two weeks later, I could come out with 700,000, a million dollar loan. Yeah, well. Okay. And yeah, I was unemployed. Okay. But the people who didn't be the loan didn't care because they made money giving me the loan. They made commission. Everybody makes commission. Everybody makes something. So when you have an industry where everybody makes money, it inflates, it blows up. So yeah, that, that was just an aside. So yeah, so when I was not working, I also walked up. It's a, um, it's interesting. So I basically did everything. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned that though, even though as an aside, because there's a tweet, and I mean I've loved following your Twitter since Jody introduced us. Um, I was, I was just scrolling through before this chat just cause I hadn't, hadn't really been on much today and, and love some, but there was one from the end of May and I think you'd liked it, which was why it popped up on my feed, but it's from, uh, someone, I don't know how to say their name. I think they might be Spanish. It's like Ertats X to Geroff. Oh yeah. Uh, Sayeta. Yeah. I've met him. Ertats is a great guy. Ertats. I love Ertats. So, so the tweet says, I found myself worried about money, so I gave away some a la Guru Anaerobic, which is your yeah. your name on, on Twitter, your handle. Now, before I get you to talk a little bit about that, I'm currently reading this book here, which is a, a pretty famous one. Yeah. Rich Rich Dad Poor Dad. Most people have read Paul it. Oh, um, yeah. But he, he talks in literally in the chapter that I just finished yesterday or the day before about giving away money. Now, this line says, giving money oh. is the secret to most great wealthy families. That's one of his quotes in there. Interesting. I mean, I read that when it came to that audit. I read it when it first came out. I don't know when that was. That was in the 90s? I think it was late late 90s was or early 2000s. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was a sucker for all those books, the self-improvement books, <laughs> how to get rich books, how to win friends and influence people, all sorts of things. I was a sucker for all those. I read loads of, I wrote every, every book from Norman Vincent, Dale, Dale Carnegie, all the old positive thinking gurus, yeah. how to get rich by Felix Dennis, Lazy Man's Way to Riches, Zurich Axioms. I read all of those books. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was really interesting. I really liked it. Yeah. And then, but then he started bringing out board games, stuff like that. It's like, it's like merchandise surrounding that was just incredible. Yeah. But I read it. But my idea of giving money away wasn't, it's, it's different than sure. the version you've just quoted by Robert Kiyosaki. My one was, it's not to let, money is extremely important, but it's also not important. It has this, it's this weird thing. You can't be controlled by money. Okay. So I realized it was smart. If I didn't want a job because I, I didn't want to be employed, I was also not going to let any external circumstance control me. And that also involved money. Mm. Okay. And I said, I think this last year, and there are many, many times, like I said, when I did my trading options, so when I did all sorts of things, I lost money and I made money. And I realized that when I didn't have much money, so yeah, I might've had five pounds the last five days or 10 pounds the last a fortnight. I would give some of it away to a homeless person. 
And what I was saying to myself, I don't care. You can't control having no money can't control me. So it was a way for me to conquer my own slavery to money. So when you lose money, stuff you have left, give some of it away. And it wasn't because I was being philanthropic or being nice to anybody. It was a way of me saying to myself, I don't care. I've lost money. I don't have much money. Here, let me give some away. So it was me putting money in its place. Interesting. Making it less important. So it's only, you may have said, it could even be like a coping mechanism. I'm not against coping mechanisms. It's like a coping mechanism. I haven't got much money. What should I do? Give some of it away. You can't control me. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. So it's different than build wealth through giving money away, but you know, to the moat, Robert. To me, it was like, you're not going to control me. Even if I've got little, I'm going to give some of it away. It's fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. It's counterintuitive, counter- but I love it. Do you, do you have any other examples that you might've done a similar thing in life where you felt pressure, whether it's through, you know, resistance training or any of the work that you do now, where it's like, you're getting some tension or you're getting some pushback and you're like, no, I'm going to fucking go more into that. I, I think that, uh, I, I don't know if this is related, but I think, and I say, again, I, I know it's not a cliche, but you've got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations because if you don't, you don't know who you are. You're only half human. And I think because you don't know your dark sides, and you don't know how you, you don't know. I've said, I mean, I don't know if anyone could be ever truly couple, but for me personally, someone I feel is someone who's never been financially uncomfortable. They've always been comfortable. They have no idea how their psychology is. And they can say, oh, well, if I had, uh, I'd never do this, I'd never do that. I've done all sorts of stuff, some of it, which I've got proud of. And I've done also because I've done it to survive. Mm. Okay, I'm not saying it's good to be in that position, but I think I know myself a little bit, and I know myself because of the things I've chosen. I, 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 maybe I'm going off a, no, no. A, a tangent here, but it goes back to you know with athletics and training. Is that you've got to be uncomfortable to improve, and also if you push the boundaries, you learn what your weaknesses are. And I think in life you do have to learn what weaknesses are. Okay, and then you, because of that, I mean that you can be more empathetic with other people and weaknesses, and also you just know yourself a bit. Mm. That's all. And who said know thyself? Yeah. So I think I know myself. You know, good sides and bad sides because it's not all good. Mm. You know, I think I know myself more than perhaps other people because um, I purposely put myself in shit situations. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't change that because it's made me who I am and it's given me an insight into human condition. I think uh, it goes, what you were saying, what you were alluding to about, you know, if you're in a bad situation, make it worse. You know, if I didn't have much money, I'd give some of it away. I purposely give some of it away. Yeah. And someone may say, why would you do that? Because that's like not rational. It's not logical. But for me, there wasn't logic behind it. It was like, you cannot control me. I'm not allowed. So I think that's been the main thing in my life. It's like you, whatever it is, I will not let an external situation control me. Mm. Perhaps I should have done. Perhaps I should have been more bothered about money. Perhaps I, but I was more bothered about freedom. I've only ever been about 
rather than with freedom and money. And when it comes to things like health and fitness, it also relates to that because you're not free when you get older, if you're suffering from a chronic disability because you haven't looked after your health. So to me, that's one of the reasons I keep healthy and fit is because there's no point, no matter how much money I have, okay, if I've got a chronic illness and I literally can't, you know, do anything, and I'm like, my grandson is about to be born any day, any day now, yeah. you know, so I want to be able to mess about with him and I want to be able to run around and lift him up and do stupid stuff, you know, so freedom isn't just about the money side. I'm literally rambling now, but freedom isn't about just the money side, it's about the physical aspect, keeping fit out. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that's always been a default setting. Yeah. yeah. Always been a default setting. No, so it's the reason I gave money away was to lessen money's control. Yeah. I don't know if that's written in a book, but that's what I found. I think you find these things throughout your life and that's a, that's a great thing that you found at, at that young age, essentially, and to have what you have now. Because, I mean, I'm looking at you, obviously, no one's going to be watching this this podcast, but you, you're 61, you don't look 61, you look like you probably, I would say, early 40s, with all, uh -huh. with, in all honesty, Thank you. you got fucking pipes on you, like, that would make most men jealous, ridiculous. <laughs> so, you're right in saying that. You know, the health and that that freedom from whether it's a job entrapment or restrictions on your body because all you've been focused on for the last 30 years is sitting at a desk and punching a fucking keyboard. Yeah. Like, fuck that. You, you want to live, like you're saying, you want to be able to pick your grandson up in 10 years and or maybe not 10 years, five years, throw him up into the sky and catch him, right? I mean, you yeah. probably you probably will do that in in ten years, you mad bastard. Oh, will when you're seventy one, catching a ten year old, you know, running running <laughs> running around the park with him, it'll be it'll be mad to see. That crazy old guy. <laughs> well, I mean, people won't know you're old unless you fucking tell them. That's that's the beauty of it. I think I want to talk more about that soon, but I want to quickly jump back. You left the bank when you were in your early twenties, and before you mentioned that you had your daughter at twenty five, so. Could we talk about that? Because I feel like in this day and age for people in their twenties, if they were to leave a job and just do those sorts, sorts of things, especially if you had a young kid, there would be social pressures, you know, especially, I don't know if you were married or with, with the, with the mother of the child at yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah. With your, with, if you stayed with your partner, but could you talk about what that dynamic was like raising a young girl and you know, not knowing ultimately if you had lots of, or, you know, a secure income coming in, how did you deal with that? I think honestly, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier on, my mum didn't have much money and yet I still enjoyed my child. So I realized it wasn't just about money. Okay. It's about a loving parent. Okay. And it's about having some sort of, uh, boundaries or almost like a nest that you operate, that you were in. So you felt safe and secure because your parent had had this, you know, in, had created this environment for you to be safe and secure. And so you knew what was what you felt safe in. And then, um, uh, I think there's a fellow called Danny Fasano who does a small bets on Twitter. He's a really interesting guy. He left Amazon AWS. He's like half a million dollars a year at AWS. And he's become a really good creator on Twitter. He's now got 125,000 followers. And he said something which I uh, completely agree with. 
But very often, whenever I have children, mostly they say, okay, I have to be responsible now. I've got to put food in their plate. I've got to earn money. I've got to, you know, keep a roof over my house and everything. My one was the opposite. Not that those, those things are quick, but I'm saying when my daughter was young, my thing was, I've got to be responsible now. What does that mean? And for me, that meant seeing my daughter grow up, having more time with her. And I realized when I took her to school, there were no men. Okay. All the men were out working. Okay. And I saw those guys on Sunday lunchtime, just before lunch, taking the kids to the park. And it's literally, you could tell that the that folks had no form of understanding of their own children. Okay. were three or four years old. So when they were crying, because they hurt their knee in a sandpit, the parents didn't, the, the father didn't know how to cope with them. And I thought, isn't that a shame that the fathers who are working, putting money on the table, you know, everything, making them secure, have no relationship, haven't, haven't have got a substandard relationship with their kids. So like Daniel said, the decision I made when my daughter was young wasn't a traditional um, thing of, I've got to be sensible, knuckle down, go to work. And I'm like, hold on a second, no, that's not the life I want. And also, I know full well that when they're young, they don't give a shit about money. They give, they, 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 all they give a shit about is a home life. If their parent loves them, if they sing them stories when they go to bed or, you know, read them books, you know, go out with them, play with them. You know, I was very outdoors. Hannah was very outdoors, my daughter. So we just used to do loads and loads of things with them. Okay. And... That was a decision I made that to me, that was far more important than settling down and getting a job was And now I've got a really good relationship with my daughter. I don't know that may just happen chance or it may be due to the fact that, you know, I saw a lot of her when we grew up, we, you know, we went out for long walks, picnics on a holiday to the beach all together. And this is while other people were at work, you know, and the kids were at school or, you know, and, or the kids were young and the father not seeing him. So for me, the important decision when Hannah is young is that I have more time to see her. That was the opposite. Money to me wasn't because I knew it wasn't important to her and it wasn't important to our relationship. So, um, and I think, as I say, that may have been informed slightly. In fact, my mum didn't have much money. I didn't think at all about money when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Didn't have any problem. So. No, it's fascinating. It's a decision I made. I, yeah, I love it, mate. I think it, it leads me to a question that I've sort of not, not struggled with, but I love sort of playing with in my mind. And it's sort of along the lines of at what point do you feel you matured and became in air quotes, an adult, right? And you're mentioning taking things more seriously, maybe when you have a kid or maybe it's when you turn 30 and, and enter the new, the new decade after your clusterfuck of a twenties. That's somewhat what mine's been like, but for you, you know, was it a certain experience like your daughter or when did you feel like you, you knew what was going on? You had a grip of the world or has it not occurred yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fun, isn't it? I, I, I think it, obviously when you have a kid, you grow up so you are responsible. I understand that. And you know, what's great, what's, what's free. Some people think that having a child is like constricting. It's not, it's completely free because you realize you're no longer the center of the universe. There's this other little creature that's more important than you are. And I think that's really good. 
Okay. And I'm not religious, but maybe that's also part of religious aspect. It's something there, which is bigger than you. Yeah. Okay. So I all think, so for me, that's liberating in the sense that the world doesn't evolve around me. You know, it doesn't involve around whatever. This is creature is more important. Okay. And I think that's really good for one's own ego, not one's ability to have this other thing, which is more important. Uh, and it puts your own life, it puts your place of perspective. Uh, so that's a stage, that's a sort of a stage transition, you know, going from not having a child to having a child. Um, as far as growing up is concerned, I don't really know because what is growing up, you know, what really is growing up? Um, is it appreciating nature? Is it being sensible? Is it getting a dad bod? Is it not having fun anymore? What is growing up? Who knows what growing up is? What is there a definition? Can I go into go into the dictionary? Growing up, look it up. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Yeah. Um, and also, I know loads of people my age. If growing up means being boring, then no. Then obviously, I wouldn't want to be grown up. But um, I think this is a revelation because, as I said, when I was youngest, like people like twenty, exist, they were all boring and negative. But actually, you realise that. Uh, and you get older, me, I don't really feel much different when I was younger, yeah. you know, psychologically. Mm. You know more, you know more, obviously. You know more, you've experienced more, you may have opinions which are a little bit more solidified over time, because, or of whatever. Essentially, I think my personality is to say, um, you're just a bit more knowledgeable. I actually wouldn't do such ridiculous things that, and, uh, I think one thing is, I think there is a transition slide. One from when you're a kid, when you're immortal, you're never going to die. And then realizing that you are mortal and one day you'll die. Mm. Okay. And I, to me, that sort of happened, I don't know, in my thirties, perhaps. And suddenly it's two phases of life. One is when you're immortal. Two is when you realize you're mortal, you know, they're going to die. And you know, I always go like to walk through cemeteries and stuff like that, not because I'm morbid, but because that's where we end up. <laughs> you know, that's the, they say start with the end you find. Well, the ultimate end you find, as far as I'm concerned, is you die and you're a bitter. Uh, and also when you reach my age as well, people start popping their jobs. You know, when you get to your mid forties, fifties, people you grew up growing, grow up with, start dying, mm. you know, and that didn't happen. I mean, older people. Even die. I understand that. It's people your age. And they've got even TV personalities. They all start dying. And it's like, wow, no, this is going to happen. This is literally going to happen to you. You're just going to be literated from existence. So perhaps that's part of growing up, is realizing you're no longer immortal. You're no longer, you know, you are going to die. What that means. And, and perhaps that also makes you realize how precious it is to have uh, to love your children and to love people around you. Mm. How, what the important things are in life. Again, I say that's a cliche, but once you realize your own mortality, perhaps you realize what's important in life. Uneasy important, I understand that. But you could be rich or miserable. Yeah, money can only, well, I said, I think on Twitter, that, you know, money is really important, makes your life a lot better, but it doesn't bring back a dead child. Okay. So, yeah. You know, there are things more important, you know, uh, and I think as an older person, 
I think time with your kids and your extended family or nieces becomes more and more important. Yeah. You know, and then you realize when your mum was saying, you've always going, you know, come around for lunch, let's do this, let's go out for a day out, you realize what they were doing. So you wanted time with their loved ones. And so perhaps that's being an adult, realizing your mortality. I don't know. Yes. It's good. Go from not thinking about it to realize we're going to die. No, I like it. I, I wasn't expecting that as an answer, but. No, I wasn't expecting it because I'm just like thinking it. It's like, you know, <laughs> I haven't got anything prepared. It's like, of course. it comes to my mind. No, of course. But I, I, I love it. I think it's a good, it's a good line, uh, a good marker in the sand, a good line in the sand in terms of, yeah, if you were to look at your life and go, oh, I realize, you know, there is more than. Yeah, chasing chasing the dollar or chasing chasing a certain person or a certain look or a certain car. It's like, oh, you know, my my parents are gonna die. I'm gonna die. My my friends and family are going to. Yeah, let's spend more time. You mentioned, you know, the important thing is yeah, maybe hanging out with your mum if she wants to go for a lunch date or or you know your daughter. You mentioned a few times when we were setting this up that your grandson is about to be born any day now. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, due tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> How cool! But what are what are the important things for you now? Like, what does a day look like to you? Because you're clearly in control of your day. It seems. You know what? If I had a job, I'd only do it voluntarily. I'd do it for no money. Yeah. Okay. But then again, if you're doing it for no money, it's because you want to do it, and also you're not in control. And I said on uh, the social media a few times, you know, work for free, make money from wait. You know, make money from leisure. So I, I only get them. It's nice having money, but I'll only make money doing stuff I want to do. Yeah. Um, and for instance, my daughter bought an art gallery seven, eight years ago. She bought an art gallery. And I was a manager there for a year to help her out. She never had a business before. So it was like a baptism by fire when she bought an art gallery. She went from tennis coach to business owner. So, you know, she did ground running. So for the first three years, it was tough. Because you know how many businesses sold in the first three years. I don't know what it is. Then 70%, I don't know. So the first three years for her was tough. Uh, so I thought, okay, and I spoke to Hannah's mum. I said, you know, well, how, can, how can we help Hannah? Yes. So I'm the manager of the gallery for, it's the only job I have this life. Basically. I was working for a reason and they were all non-financial reasons. And that was to help my daughter. So I was working there four days a week in an art gallery as manager of the art gallery for a whole year. And that was the best job I ever had. And I wasn't paid any. I was literally being paid peanuts by my own daughter. <laughs> you bring in a packet of peanuts and that was my pay. <laughs> so you know what they say about, you know, you pay nuts, you get monkeys. I was that monkey. <laughs> yeah, in the gallery. But it was the best job I had and it didn't involve any money. Mm. What the hell? Didn't involve any money because there was a bigger reason to be working. That purpose, yeah. There was a purpose, and that was helping my daughter. Okay, and so that so uh, now my day is basically I do what I like. Uh, you know, the problem is when you have a day where you have no real deadlines. Is that you've got to train yourself to have deadlines because there's always mainly you can always leave things for tomorrow, and that's deadly. You know, so when you have a job, your boss says, "I want that report." By 10 a.m. on my desk on Thursday morning, you do it. Yeah. Okay. But when you don't have a boss, no one's doing that. So you have to train your own mind to you have a deadline, stick to the deadlines. Yeah. 
having said that, if someone says, do you want to go fishing? I'd rather go fishing, <laughs> you know, or whatever like that. So, you know, a little bit flexible. But the, the thing about having your own day, so my own day is like, you know, I obviously I'm on this mission at the moment to like run five minutes per mile in my six minutes, run 12 seconds or a hundred. I'm doing my hundred body weight. That's a hundred percent what I'm on a mission to do at the moment. There's a little like uh, stuff I'm doing at the moment. So I'm doing quite a fair amount of exercise. Uh, I'm also, um, I've been started it last year on cycling around the UK cups. Okay. So that will probably take me three or four years. So I've done a lot of Southeast and Southwest and the East coast of the UK. Uh, so I'm doing that bit by bit. So yeah. there's no time limit to that. It's not an urgent thing, but that's been, that was great last year. So, so I just think where it Yeah. Mate, that's that's incredible. I mean, you you mentioned there a bit about your your health and your lifestyle. I'd love to to go back and and chat about that. You mentioned going back into university in your early thirties. What was your your motivation to go into that field specifically, health and fitness, as as a PT? Ultimately, I think you mentioned you worked as well uh, a fitness trainer. Was that right? Yeah, there was two reasons. One, uh, you got a grant. <laughs> okay, he was unemployed. So I went to university because I got a grant. There was money involved. Two, it was sports science. And I told you, I think I said earlier that I was always interested in science. Yeah. So I did sports science in a three-year degree. So I didn't do it for a job. I thought I got a job off. Yeah. I did it because I had an interest in that world. So nutrition, biology, uh, biomechanics, physiology, kinesiology, psychology, sport. Um, lab testing and all of that sort of thing. So I really, really enjoyed three years at university. Uh, but it was because it wasn't, I thought, oh, I'll do this because I can get a job art. Uh, and it's because it, I just went by interest. And yeah, there was a bit of money as well at the time. Yeah. And uh, so I did that in university in Surrey. And um, I sort of came out with a sports science degree. So I'm glad I did that. And I learned a lot of the terms. Uh, lactate threshold, obler, you know, all the terms, physiolo- physiological terms to do with exercise, physiology and stuff. Yeah. Like demystified all of that. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and I think I wrote a couple of articles off the back of having a degree in sports science. I wrote for a women's health magazine, one to do with tennis and another to do with uh, a low glycemic index diet. That yeah, was back in the 90s. Because in the 90s, we started getting these stone age and paleo type books out diets and everything, juicing carbs, yeah. going back to primal lifestyle. So I was interested in nutrition, all the rest of it. Uh, I was training in athletics for a club. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, sorry, I forgot what your original thing but basically no, I, right. just through interest. Yeah. Yeah. I, that... I was already training then. Uh, I was a club athlete. So, um, yeah, um, that's why I did it. So yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, right. And you mentioned those targets that you're you're trying to aim now uh, as 61. Oh, what is it? Under five-minute mile, under 12? No, not under. I mean, I think the world record for a 60-year-old is 4.49 per mile. Okay. Or many minutes, which is ridiculous. But I'm not going to get anywhere near there because, well, for a start, if I wanted to do that, I'd have to train my socks off. Sure. And I'd probably get injured. And everything for me is no matter what I do, don't overtrain, don't get injured. Because if you're injured, what's the point of you getting help? You're hobbling around, you can't do it. Yeah, right. So I think I've got an opportunity to get somewhere between 5.20 and 5.30 per hour. Yep. Which is fine. Yeah. You know, it'll probably take me, I don't know, 
top 10, top 15 in the country, my age. Yeah. Uh, but also running 12 seconds, not 12 flat, but 12 point something. Sure, sure. For 100 meters. So probably I'd be, I don't know, perhaps one of just a handful of people in the world by age who can run both five minute mile and a 12 second 100. Yeah. And also just a few months ago, I, I saw something. Where did I see it? Um, about a hundred squats, but not a hundred body weight squats, a hundred squats with your body weight on the bar. So it's like oh. plus a hundred percent body weight. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to achieve that, but I've slowly been working up. So now I think I'm at a hundred continuous squats with two thirds body weight. Wow. Uh, and it would take, so that's been interesting. I think the problem is with me is that I like challenges. I just like physical challenges. Yeah. That's not a problem. Uh, I wish that's I great. That's great. Why is wish, that a problem? No, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't. I wish I could just sit down, you know, get my fucking popcorn, watch a bit of Netflix. <laughs> I can't. Mate, that I is. love exercise. You're talking, about, you're talking about not wanting to be boring before. That's boring. Keep, <laughs> keep the challenges going. Yeah. To, yeah. to be able to to be able to hit these markers though, and like I was saying before, you look like you're you're about forty years old now. You obviously would have had to have done years of, you know, building your body, maintaining that. You're mentioning there trying to avoid injury. I've absolutely cooked my Achilles from uh, running with my mate. I mentioned last week in the email when we had to reschedule this. Yeah, I've cooked. Absolutely cooks my Achilles. He's oh, running. Um, he's running an average of about sixty-five to seventy k's a day. I ran uh, eighty-eight kilometers with him over four or th yeah four days. I ran eighty-eight k's, um, and we had yeah. breaks in between, like every five to seven k's. But that probably made it worse because you know you run seven kilometers uphill, yeah. up and downhill in the country. Then you stop for five ten minutes. No real cool down. No real stretching or anything, and then go again. And so. I haven't really been able to even walk downstairs properly since last Thursday. So almost Bam. a week now. Yeah, very sore. So I hear you in well, both both Achilles or one Achilles. Both. Both. Yeah. Yeah. They're so feeling tender now. If you pick, yeah. They're feeling better. They're definitely feeling better than what they were. I've been like I was in the pool last night doing some laps and walking around. I went for a bike ride, uh twenty five kilometer bike ride earlier today. So I'm I'm oh. definitely it's not I don't think anything major, but just yeah. all of a sudden this, like I looked at my Strava, my Strava was like flatlining on running. And then all of a sudden this fucking peak of like 88 kilometers. I'm like, no wonder I'm cooked, you idiot. It's like in training, most training, it's not, not really the big corrections which cause injury. It's one of two things, one of overtraining or suddenly increasing the load or mileage or frequency, stuff like that. So it's a big change in training. Yeah. Or if you're used to only running on flat, start running on loads and loads of hills, you know, so it's that transition, you know, that quick transition, you know, when you go from one thing to the other. So, um, right. yeah, I think I, someone posted the other day, I think it's Mike Cernovich, that one of the advantages that someone has when they haven't done any sport or training, when they reach 50, they're not knackered. Yeah. Okay. They haven't got loads of injuries because it, without a doubt, it's true. Yeah. There are a load of people who are older, done sport all their life, now got knackered knees, yeah. they've got knackered Achilles, and all sorts of things. And when they do start training a bit more, they just get hit by injuries all the time. Okay. Or they've got problems with their meniscus, you know, in their knee or something because yeah. they did too many squats or whatever it is. So I think we could be unlucky or unlucky, but 
for me, I think even though I've had loads of injuries in the past, I seem to have come through them like not, you know, unscathed. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not carrying any injuries. So, but that doesn't mean I could just go complete crazy. That's what I said before that I wouldn't train competitively for a while. Yep. I'd have to push it. Yeah. If you decide that you want to train competitively, that's the number one goal. And it means you need to train hard. You need to like optimize what you do. But as an athlete, you're on the precipice. You're like an F1, like I said it before, you're like an F1 racing car. You're one sheared ball away from disaster. Yeah. You could be super fit and the next day you're injured. I don't want that. I'd rather be reasonably fit, you know, relatively and uninjured. Yeah. So I will never, I don't think I'll ever compete again because uh, if I want to compete, I wanted to get anywhere near the over, I'd have to train like crazy. Sure. And I know full well that I'd probably get injured by you. Yeah. Okay. And I don't want that. So I'm training now reasonably, you know, within a bit. It's nothing but I'm training on flats on grass. It's not spikes. Like it's not on the road. So I've learned over time that, you know, as you get older, you're not a robot and it takes you longer to recover and your biological organism, you know, you're not a machine. Mm. And you don't, it takes you three times as long to recover. And so, but I still have these challenges and I just think that's always going to be the case. I remember when I was walking my uh, uh, girlfriend in, um, when I was about 30 in a local common, Wimbledon Commons, big green area in Southwest London. Yeah. And it's got loads of ditches, like big ditches, big ditches. And I remember saying to her, I said, when I'm an old man, I still want to be able to jump those ditches. Okay, because I had it in my mind when I'm older. I was, I grew up in like Tars, Tars and Fields. I'm all running for the jungle, swinging and jumping and diving into rivers. And I always thought that's me, guys. And I'll always be able to do that. And I found that I can because I just kept up. You know, I didn't put on weight, I kept thin, I kept reasonably strong, you know, I kept fit. And I can do those things that I said when I was 30. Yeah. You know, literally I go and jump over a ditch. And that's not the same as doing like a five minute like big time. It, what's the point doing all these things if you can't normal everyday activity doing things? Yeah. So for me, I feel great doing it. If I didn't feel great doing it, I wouldn't do it. If it made me injured, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So yes, I have challenges. I'll always have challenges because that's just in my makeup, physical challenges, just in my makeup. Uh, but I realized that um, I shouldn't go so mad that I'm just going to get injured. Because what's the point of being injured? If I've got a busted Achilles, you can't run anymore. You can't walk properly. So what's the point? Mate, we should have had this, we should have had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, yours is probably just inflammation. Right? Yeah. Like you've got a sore spot or a knock, it's inflammation. Of course. But just imagine if you're a competitive athlete. Yeah. You need physio, you need and you still be training hard. Yeah. That, you know, you're ne probably never fully recovered. You know, you get physio, you get treatment, the training, the training, the training. And what stops most competitive athletes' career is injury yeah. over time. And they rail against it and they try and go on, but eventually it's injury and stops their train yeah, right. and competing at a high level. So I don't want to do that, but I've still got challenge. Of course. So, so yeah, it's, you know, it's just keeping certain amount of fitness throughout life, but not going mad. So for you then, was that the beginning of it when you went to get that degree? 
you know, in your early thirties or were you already fit then? And have you just been able to nah, maintain that and build stuff. on it? Right. I think I only had two years of my life where I debauched life. Okay. <laughs> and it was just after I left school, you know, it was like before and after I, I was going out a lot. I was drinking a lot. Uh, I was, I was into music, like music. So I was going to see a load of like groups in Soho and Chelsea, all over, all over London. I was into the EDC, you know, I came out up and then there was, uh, jazz and everything. So London was a great place to be, Yeah, you know, if you want to go to clubs, you want to see like music. And so for two years, I don't think I did any exercise, you know, and it's like, well, there was a time in your life, didn't do anything. Well, I didn't, I was like drinking, I was just enjoying myself. And then I got, I was in my early twenties. I realized that, oh, this is just crazy. You know, drinking on a Friday night, getting hammered, getting hammered on a Saturday night going out on a Sunday lunchtime, drinking, and it's like, okay, that, that's not going to, the thing is, you know, I am predisposed to being quite slim, even though my dad got off weight and he got diabetes, you know, I was still lean it. I was still like 10% body fat, no matter how much I drank, yeah. you know, now how much, you know, the exercise. So, um, so, and then from then I've always done exercise, always, even when I, before I was competitive athlete, before I did athletics. I was always running. I was always doing press ups, sit ups, you know, chin ups and things, climbing up trees, running around, playing football. But I've always active. That's the main thing is to be active in your normal life. Yeah. Not just doing one or two gym sessions a week and thinking you've done your exercise. No, the healthiest people I know are just, just got active lifestyle. Right. It's not the ones who've been to the gym. It's just people, older people. We've got an active outdoor lifestyle. And I think that's the underpinning of health. Don't eat too much, have an active, normal, active life. And that has got to be the default setting. It's almost like a wild animal, yeah? The outside, active life, eat okay. That's 90%. And then the gym, doing specific training sessions, that's additive. Yeah, that's like the icing on the cake. But the actual cake is being an, having an outdoor, active life. Normal. And of course, working in an office doesn't help that because you're sedentary for like yeah. seven, eight hours a day. You know? So that's another reason to rewild your life. If you want to rewild your life, then that's like, you can't really work in an office. <laughs> it's not good for your health. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because part of, I mean, my next sort of question, but you answered it was, okay, well, so what should people do if they're listening and want to change their life? But it, it, it is almost as simple as that. You've got to You've got to change and incorporate so much, you know, as a daily practice, getting out for a walk, you know, whether it's a jog, playing with your kids, throwing the ball with the dog, whatever it might be, but all of these things that might be, might be deemed as just playing, right? Um, well, what would be the best word? It's just like, you know, un, uncurated play. You're just mucking around. You're not, it doesn't have to be like this fixed, do 10 of these, then do 20 of these, then do 30 of these. Obviously that helps. Like you're mentioning a hundred yeah, squats pretty much. that yeah. can, that can definitely be massively beneficial, but anyone wanting to get in shape, it can literally just be like, yeah, go, go for, go for a walk. I mean, 10,000 steps is a common thing, but why can't you do, why can't you do double that? You know, I know people who complain about not being able to fall asleep at night. Uh, and then it's like, okay, well, what, what did you do during the day? Oh, you sat down and drank three coffees and didn't, didn't even get any sunlight, you know, didn't walk, didn't walk around. No fucking, no wonder you're wired at night. You haven't put any yeah. toll on your body. So I don't know, to me, this seems so, so logical, but I realize it's not, you know, we're facing 
some pretty interesting times health-wise um, off the back of especially the last couple of years. So, Well, it's almost the opposite of thermodynamics. You have to expend energy to get energy. Mm. And at least and when you don't expend energy because you're sitting in your ass, you feel more tired, you feel more lazy. So for me, if I go out for a walk or messing around outside, I feel more energetic. Yeah. So it's the opposite. It's like the more energy you take in and the less you expend, you don't have energy. You have less energy. Right. But for me, it's like I expend energy to get energy. It makes me feel good psychologically. It makes me feel fresher. Which means it makes me feel better. Which means ultimately you can create as much as you you want and need, right? Which is pretty yeah. it's pretty cool when you think about it like that. If you feel tired, if you feel physically tired, what do you do? Do something physically active. Yeah. And you don't feel physically tired anymore. Yeah. I'm not talking about so dead tired that you literally but you know, just normally during your day, if you're feeling lethargic and physically tired, what should you do? Move your body. Yeah. Go for and a walk. Less go for a walk around the yeah. block. You literally go for a walk. Yeah. And then pe- people get into this like down spot. Oh, I'm so tired. All I can do is rest. No. That's when you need to do something. Yeah. Go for a walk. Go for a cycle. Do something. Climb a fucking tree. Do something. <laughs> and that will make you feel so much more energetic. Um, but yeah, there's a lot at the moment, especially with climate change, about rewilding about rewilding the environment and, you know, the ecosystem and the rest of it. My thing is about rewilding your lifestyle. It's like become the modern hunter forager, you know, forage and hunt, which means that basically you're outside doing things, low level things, just wandering around. And every now and then you do some mega things. You might cycle a hundred miles every now and then, you know, you go to the coast, cycle to the coast you know, down 30 miles in the day. And when it just thinks, so for me, I'm just trying to recreate like this hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Mm. So if you want to rewild the environment, rewild an area to let natural systems develop and everything, do it to your own life as well. It's very difficult for people to do that if you're working nine to five. Yeah. You can't rewild your life. So to me, you can't have, a rewilded life if you're domesticated in a job. So to me, I just want to rewild myself, which means basically low level activity every day. Yeah. With occasional bursts of activity. And to me, and that's being outside. That's like, to me, that's like just normal. Yeah. Not even like just normal. <laughs> that's our heritage. It's just normal. I'm gathering sure. being outside. Do, you, do your weekends and public holidays change much to your, say, the Monday to Friday, or do all days look quite similar? I realize there's certain things that you can and can't do on public holidays and, and markets are open more on weekends and things like that, but do you sort of structure your days quite similarly? Um, I um, In a way, yeah. We've just had in UK, we had the Queen's 70th Platinum <laughs> Jubilee. So she was coronated in 1952. So she's been on the throne, I think, longer than any monarch for 70 years. Wow. Uh, and so we had a we had a four day uh, holiday. So Thursday was bank holiday, Friday was bank holiday, and then you had the Jubilee weekend. So it's four days. I quickly went down to the coast in South England, a place called Bright, which is a well known coastal resort yeah. in the UK. And I thought, oh, I'll do it on Thursday. And then I realized it was bank holiday. I thought, no, 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 don't ever do that because it will be jam packed. 
because it's bank holiday. Right. But I went the day before on the Wednesday and it was still quite crowded. Yeah. Okay. Because it was half term. The kids are up on half term. It's still quite crowded, but less crowded. So if anything, bank holidays and weekends, I will, I will do most of my stuff both in going out to places, to, to the coast, or to the park or anything. I will do that when everyone else is at work. Mm. There's less people around. Yeah, yeah. So other than that, you know, as I've, you probably seen, I've written about it, gang, is, you know, is you have a life where you don't really realize what day it is. Okay. When you're at work, you realize what day it is because it's Monday morning. You know it's fucking Monday morning when you get <laughs> and you know it's Friday. Why do you know it's Friday? Because you go out and get rat assed on a Friday evening with your mates. So if you ask someone who works what day it is, they tend to know what day it is. But when you ask someone who's uh, not at work, they're unemployed, they have a business or they're free, they, have, they find it difficult to remember what day it is. <laughs> for me, that's like a test of freedom. Do you know what day it is? And for me, I literally forget what day it is. Okay, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter what day it is. And I saw quite a few people who are not nine to five types. So you can go out to like a, a coffee shop or you can go out for a walk or you go to the beach. It doesn't matter what day it is. They're free. So no one gets a damn what day it is. So to me, that's like an intrinsic test of freedom. Ask someone do they know what day it is. And the free person has to think for a while. What day is it? I, uh, is it? Day. What date is it? They don't know. They don't care. So I don't care what day it is, but I do avoid bank holidays in busy places because lots of people will be there. Yeah. When you, uh, when so you that's remember the only the... <laughs> Yeah. That's the only modification I make is that, you know, uh, to stay away from really busy places on the weekend and bank holidays. Other than that, it makes no difference what day it is. Yeah. No, beautiful. I'll only ask because it's something that, you know, I've been self-employed now for coming up to a year. And have having that opportunity to yeah structure my days, have that freedom. You mentioned deadlines before, holding yourself accountable to to self imposed deadlines. It's it's a new challenge, almost like deprogramming myself from the the old nine yeah. to five. But I've I've loved it and enjoyed it. But you know, you as someone who's seemingly done it for you know decades now, that's why I'm I'm curious. You know, Saturdays still have this certain feel to me and even Sundays um, have a feel of like, oh, I should be a bit more leisurely about these days, whereas really I could just be doing four to five hours of deep work on whatever it is, whether it's the podcast, my business, whatever, getting in a couple of, you know, get in a workout, go for a bike ride, go for a run, catch up with mates. I could do the same day every day and then, yeah, completely lose track of what fucking day it is. Like, who cares? Just structure your day how you want it to be forever. You used the, you used the right word there. You, you, you said deep programming. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. When I first left work, it took me a while, a year or so, or two years to deep program myself, the Monday to Friday, nine to five psychology. Yeah. It's also a lot of people still doing that, that you know. Yeah. Okay. So I still tended to follow the nine to five routine and things that I did and the weekend routine because my mates still might be going out on a Friday or on a Saturday night. So you're like literally doing that. So, and I think that I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory or anything like that, but you're basically pro brainwashing programs into the nine to five lifestyle. Yeah. And it starts very young. If you've got nine to five parents, 
they're literally going to program it to a life by lifestyle because that's their life. Yeah. And so they'll naturally, you'll be programmed. So you go to school, then you come home, and then your parents come back to work. The weekends are free. And then at school, they tell you you need to learn stuff. Why? So you can be employed. Or go to university, you get a degree. Why? So you get and everything. So it's literally programming all the time. And I'm not saying there's any deep reason for it, since the there's some great forces doing it to make us into like idiots and slaves. I'm just saying that's our culture. Yeah. Okay. And it takes people a while to leave it to like, it's like a bag. It's like if you've got an injury in sport and you get rid of the injury, you still hold it in your mind for a while. So it's your mind. You still have that injury. So you find that if you've got an Achilles problem or an ankle problem or hip problem, even when it's fully better for a while, you're still not running probably still there in your mind yeah so when you leave the nine to five existence you still have that programming in your mind which you have to get rid of for some people it suits them fine that's great but millions of people it does but when you do initially things it's there is this lag effect of deprogramming your mind you know from that nine to five mentality yeah now it's completely it's gone. There are no traces of it in my body at all. <laughs> and it's really, really difficult to appreciate that millions of people still have that. To me, it's like, it's like a parallel universe. <laughs> to, a, to a normal person, nine to five, hundred Friday, it's like, well, that's how life operates, isn't it? To me, it's like, I can't comprehend it. I can no longer comprehend that lifestyle. To me, it's like, it's a parallel universe. And to me, it's not a real universe. Yeah. It's like real because that's how it is. To me, it's like a weird circus that doesn't exist. It's it's almost like they're living without the internet, hey, to to bring us back full circle. <laughs> yeah, in a way. In a way, that's what it is. And it's like no there's opportunities. And it's always like a, And the more you exist out of that, the more you meet people who are not in that nine to five lifestyle. Yeah. Now, because of the internet, I meet people like yourself and like all sorts of people who are not into that nine to five lifestyle. Yeah. So to me, the nine to five lifestyle is it's okay for some people, not mocking it, but like it suits people. Of course. But to me, it's some alien, such an alien concept to me. It just seems crazy. Yeah. It just doesn't see, it just seems like a complete construct. It's a complete construct. And of course, we sort of know that it's not an ancestral thing at all. We've only been doing it for like, 200, 300, you know, we had the, ind- the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and people moved to the, the cities and then they worked nine to five. But it's, it's, but most of our lives beforehand, even agricultural and certainly hunter gatherer was basically based by the seasons, mm. time of day, light and dark. So this nine to five Monday Friday, it's just a blip. So hopefully the internet will be taking us more, will take us more will take us back to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle where you find an opportunity and you seize it, okay, and then you rest. And then you just wander around, do whatever, and then there's another opportunity, and then you go for it. Yeah. This is completely different than the mind by chronic being employed. So when I see those people, it's incomprehensible to me they're stuck in that lifestyle. So alien, such an alien thing. But I've been out of it for decades, so. Same. What can you say? No, good on you, Mark. 
Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation, mate. I feel like we could keep talking for a while, but I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I've got a couple more questions if that's all right. Of course. Been a lot of fun, mate. You mentioned social constructs before. One thing that I've been playing with a little bit lately is age being somewhat a a social construct. I mean, I don't know all the history of it, but I know it's, you know, got to do with the planets rotating and all this sort of stuff. And that, that's how we, that's how we age in terms of measuring it by, by numbers in years. But, and that's a very obviously stupid way of saying it, but anyway, I'll roll with it. If you didn't know how old you were, how old would you think you are? How old would you feel? That's difficult to answer because I know physically I'm older because I've always done exercise. I know there's a diminution in what I can do. You know, I know there's a d- difference in how you feel. Okay. Uh, but it's difficult to answer because um, basically I feel great, but I feel great as a 60-year-old. Yeah. I don't feel great as a 20-year-old. Because it's a difference. Sure. Okay. So I don't feel 20 because I'm not physically, but I feel a little bit shocked how good I feel when I'm 60. Because I thought 60, but you know, you're going to, I mean, it's ridiculous, but, but I, or, you know, you're going to be a bit decrepit, you know, you can't do things anymore, whatever. And it's like, well, that doesn't exist in my world. Yeah. So I know I'm older. So it's very difficult. If I said when I feel like I'm 40, it's sort of ridiculous because when I was 40, I felt like I was 25, you know, so yeah. physically it's very difficult, but you know, you're older because your brain, you've just gained more knowledge. You know, you've got, you've had more experiences. So you, there's a buildup, there's a hinterland <laughs> of experience that you've had that you didn't have when you were 20. There's all these things that happen. There's all these people who have come and gone in your life, you know, through relationships or because they died. So, you know, you're aging, mm. that chronological age of the 24 hour rotation of the earth and then the earth going around the sun a <laughs> year. There's no denying that, you know, that's, that's happened. Biological age, ostensibly, you know, I feel younger than I may not be because for a biological age, you need to do all sorts of tests, you know, CAC scores and blood tests and everything like that. But everyday manifestation. I don't feel like I'm 60. Mm. Uh, I don't even know what's, what you're meant to feel like at 60. Yeah. I think that's the shock. What are you meant to feel like at 60? Well, it's almost like you're reinventing it. So fair play, mate. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, you probably say that to all the boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the 40-year-olds. Uh, all the 40-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I don't know. And I think more people are finding out. that. So it goes back to what I'm saying about the life cycle. What am I expected to do at 60? Yeah. You know, sit in a rocking chair, smoke a pipe, wearing slippers. I don't know. I don't, I don't, don't know. You just do whatever you do you want to do. Yeah. You know, yes, there are physical restrictions, you know, and limitations. There's, there's no way I can, as good as I am physically, as, as I was when I was like 20. Yeah. You know, you do have more aches and pains. Than but essentially, I feel great my age. It's quite shocking. I don't know why that's happened. Doesn't make sense. People can say, "Oh, yeah, because you kept fit." But for me, it's like, why? It just doesn't make sense. That I should feel so good at sixty. It's not blowing my own trumpet. I'm literally surprised by it. Yeah, uh, it's so sort of shocking, really. Like, <laughs> I don't understand it. 
well, that's maybe a good barometer, like surprising yourself in each sort maybe. of milestone year, each yeah. decade that turns over. Hey, I, yeah. I didn't think I'd still get morning erections at, at 50 or 60 or whatever it might be like wet dreams. I don't fucking know what, whatever it is. Like that's the things young, young kids get or whatever you're yeah. men in, men in their twenties. It's like, what, uh, like who knows, but mate, fair play. I, I look forward to yeah. Living to 60, like getting that, you know, people say, yeah, we're growing old. Oh, I don't want to grow old. You get to fucking live like. You get the opportunity. Yeah. It's it, whatever you put in your body is what you're going to become. Whatever you do with your body is how it's going to function. So it's up to you to choose, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know people could be unlucky in their life. Some people can hit blue, you know, illness or they can get some sort of nasty thing, you know, Parkinson's or, or whatever. Yeah. So I know, you know, you can only control so much. Ultimately, uh, you know, if I had lived, lifestyle for the past 30 years, I wouldn't be in a physical position I am now. Yeah. Uh, and that no doubt would have affected my mentality as well and how my brain works. So, um, yeah, a lot of it is in your control, uh, but it's a certain percentage you could be lucky or unlucky. Mm. Um, but yeah, mostly I think I'm in this position. I've just looked after myself. Uh, it's not perfect because you can never reach perfection because it's always an opportunity cost. You know, you're doing one thing means you're not doing another. But, um, but I think as you get older, you try and make it a bit more holistic. So I'm no longer trying to like run the fastest I can ever run yeah. or bench press the most I can best present the lift I can better. It's just like, I just want to be a good level generalist. That's all. Not maximize one thing. You know, level generalist, basically. And uh, because of that, feel good in my day-to-day -day life. <clears throat> so I didn't feel good in my day-to-day -day life, I wouldn't feel it, but I do. So, you know, that's essentially why it is I feel good. So why not keep, to, some people may say it's obsessive, but I feel good. So, yeah. you know, if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. Of course. Uh, and, um, yeah. So going back to the thing about age, I don't really know what you should feel like at 60. Um, and I don't know what my biological age is. I know my chronological age and I just feel good. So that's it. Love it, mate. Love to hear it. So one of the final questions, the reason why I wanted to start this podcast was because I love listening to big podcasts, whether it was Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss, and they would have these massive high profile guests on. And one of the typical podcast questions was what advice would you give to your younger self? Right. And I felt like all the questions were always, or sorry, all the answers were always quite similar. Um, but these were people who, you know, massive celebrities, sports stars, people who had made it, you know, in air quotes, super successful. So I thought, what if I asked my dad that? What if I asked my neighbor? What if I asked the everyday person? Now, I think it's fair from this conversation to say that you're, you know, maybe not the, the typical everyday uh, man, but I would still love to know your answer to that question. So Mark Baker, what advice would you give to your, say 29 year old self? I'm 29, turning 30 in a few months. <laughs> what would you, what would you say to yourself? 29, 30 year old, if you could. Oh, crumbs. This is a typical one. And for me, it won't be about health. Things. Uh, and it won't be about work. It's essentially, uh, about, um, Figure out 
the, the two or three things that are most important keep hold of those. So I mentioned that, you know, we, we go through, life gets complicated to get old. Life gets complicated. All these things you need to juggle. And so there are a hundred things you're juggling. But at the end of the day, there are only two or three things important to life. You could say it's your health, it's important, but it may be your children and the people that you love. Okay. That's what's important. Those are the most, don't jeopardize those relationships by doing stupid shit, right? Saying stupid things. So the most important things is, and I said a, a while ago that you know, for the first time, we got to listen to the last phone calls made 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were phoning from the plane or from the offices and everything. You got to hear a phone conversation, people who knew they were going to die. Ascension. Again, I know it's a cliche, but basically saying, tell someone so I love, you know, tell my children I love them. You know, I'm so sorry I'm leaving. That was a most important. Now, I know it sounds solid. Try and identify which are the most important things to you. Keep hold of those things. Don't do stupid stuff. Those are most important. So you may be a multi-millionaire, but if you're overweight and you've got one fan at 16, no, so what? And so money's important, as I say, but there are other things really, really important as well. So the relationships with people love so important. And I maybe I wouldn't have said that myself. I'd say it now. Yeah. So a young person say, oh, yeah, but this is important. Fortunately, I haven't jeopardized those too much, you know, and I still have a good relationship. It's identify the things that are most important. It's in a crisis. Everything of medium importance doesn't matter. Two or three things are really important. So I just like, like verbiage for the past few minutes. Identify the things that matter to you and go towards those. That's it. Love it, mate. Thank you very much for not only that really? little Thank you. little piece of wisdom, but the last two hours I've loved loved this conversation, mate. Um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, or do you want to let people know where they can find you on social media? I'll put all the the notes, all the all the links in the show notes, but feel free to to plug away your books, whatever you'd like. Yeah, well, my my ridiculous name on, on Twitter is Guru Anaerobic. G U R U Anaerobic which is the opposite of aerobic. Uh, so go around aerobic on Twitter and everything you can see on there. Yeah. Basically my Twitter is basically ranting most of the time with a little bit of training on, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah, they can find me on there and I've got a link, uh, to everything I do, my digital stuff, my paperback books, audio and everything. I've got a link on Twitter that goes through to those. Um, and, um, yeah. And also of course, what's good, the reason people like conversations where they it's been a good conversation and the reason it's been a good conversation is i'll get to talk about myself and people love conversations say oh you're such a this is such a great conversation and uh it's only because when you say it it's like yeah because 90 percent of it was talking about me (laughs) people love listeners so if you listen to people you listen to them talk and they may talk for an hour and then it's like okay oh you're such a great person it's like yeah because basically people love that so that's a great bar to have just let people speak listen to them they think you're a wonderful person because they just spoke about themselves like <laughs> so this is why this was such a great 
great one. This is such a great COVID initiative podcast. So good to speak about myself for most of the time. Nah, you're a great man, mate. But I'm glad you've got that dopamine, <laughs> that dopamine hit, that adrenaline. You have a great rest of your Wednesday, Mark. Well, Thanks very uh, much, Rin. Good to speak, yeah. Love you again. Yeah, absolutely, Love mate. It. So there you have it, another episode of The Hope Initiative. Thank you again to Mark Baker for joining me for this conversation. Congrats as well on the grandchild that has come since this conversation. Uh, Guys, you can reach out to Mark and follow him on Twitter, Guru Anaerobic. All of the links are in the show notes. He has a few rad books as well, Gang Fit. Uh, Check them out. They're all in his bio. And as always, guys, if you enjoyed this conversation, you've listened now an hour and 52 minutes. I really do appreciate it. And if you can share it with a family member, friend, someone who you think will enjoy it and find value from it, please do so. And until next time, keep creating your life and all the very best.